Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. Amelia Merrick is studying her PhD at the University of Toronto. In her research, she is looking to answer these big questions. How do we support young people transition into life-giving work? How do we learn to think critically about and for our work? What is the role of the workplace? What is the role of post-secondary institutions? What do we do to make it more likely that work enables us to do and be what we have reasons to value? I'm so excited that my friend Amelia Merrick came on and shared this interview with you today. Hi, Amelia. Thank you so much for coming on the Ambition Theory podcast after many years of not seeing each other. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Can you introduce yourself and tell me and explain what you're doing these days? All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me um, onto the podcast, Andrea. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I am currently living in Northern BC in the town of Prince George, where though it is the middle of summer, it's 14 degrees uh, outside right now, so no summer. I am uh, taking a year to focus on my PhD in adult education and community development. uh, And I'm looking at how students transition into the workplace. Okay, and actually I wanna talk about why I wanted to interview on the podcast and it has to do with the Facebook post. So we're friends in real life, but we honestly have not seen each other in probably eight to 10 years, I think, but I'm going to read what you said. And you posted this thing on Facebook and the way that I read it, the tone that you wrote, I thought you were shocked when you learned this information. So I'm going to read it. Um, And it said, Amelia posted my learning for today in Canada, 30 to 40% of kids work for some time at a place where their paws were employees. And it's more likely to be the cases when daddies earn a higher salary. What does that mean to you? And I responded, obviously, that is how the world works. It's all about social capital. It's all about who you know that is tied to your success and the opportunities that are available to you in the workplace. But that wasn't the reaction that you got from a lot of people, was it? No, a lot of people were really surprised. And and not just surprised, but I think it's it's shocking to people when they start to consider how how do people get to be where they are and do we are we really aware of all of those hidden factors like where your dad works or where your mom works? And the study was only done on dads because at that point to look over time. Uh, perhaps not as many women were in the workforce and, and that wasn't studied. So we weren't able to see it in a relative scale. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think we take into account our social capital and what does that mean for our labor and our opportunities? 
And that's something that I talk about a lot on this podcast. And then you responded on Facebook, except we tell our kids it's about their education and skills. But in reality, that is just a tiny little part of the story. And I 100% agree. I believe that if I worked hard, if I got a degree, if I put the skills down on my resume and it showed what I could do that I could do and get whatever job I wanted. But the older I got, I realized, and people taught me about social capital, about sponsorship. And I realized that, wow, that is really how the world works. And kind of like in my mid thirties, I realized Mm -hmm. this and I look back and I'm like, yes, like I look at every single job I've had, every experience that I've given, I'm like, it explains the world of work to me, but it took me to my mid thirties to realize this. And Mm -hmm. you're at this place where you are literally every day working with students who are entering the workforce. And it's like, we're not, we're keeping a secret from them. We're sending them out and we're not telling them the truth. So let's Mm -hmm. just talk about when you realized this and what was going on for you. Yeah, I think, um, it's, it's, it's not like there was one aha moment, but when I look over the course of my life, um, you know, I, I grew up as a working class kid. I was the first one in my family to go to university. Um, and so because of the community that I had, I had certain opportunities available to me that many of my cousins didn't. So I think early on, I started to realize how important relationships were, but I didn't really see that quantified. And I didn't see how We've got one story that says, yeah, work hard, go to, go to a good school, um, volunteer, get a part-time job, and you're going to get that thing, when really that's, the, as we said, that's only part of the story. Uh, and so when I started to uh, do my PhD, uh, I had some pretty tough professors um, who kept challenging me. When I started my PhD, I really wanted to look at uh, how do we develop critical thinking skills? Like, what is the knowledge, what, what is the environment in which people um, are able to learn to think critically best? And I started to understand that the context of our relationships changes what we know, changes how we interact in the world, and what opportunities that we have. And seeing a lot of the data out there, um, not just, you know, uh, the the quote that I had on Facebook was about um, where we work, if we have a, a father who has a high income, it's more likely we're going to work in that company for a period of our life. But also there's a lot of data that suggests, even in terms of um, uh, if, if your parent graduated from high school, um, you are far more likely to only graduate from high school. And if your parent graduated from university, it is very unlikely that you won't graduate from the university. So what are, what are the factors that continue to hold us into these systems where those who have a lot will continue to get a lot and those who don't have very much are not going to get very much. Okay. So before we dive into more of the research, I want you, I want to ask you some more questions about your story because you, you just said like you were from a work, you grew up in a working class family, right? And when we knew each other in real life, when we saw each other in Toronto, like 10 years ago, you were actually um, in a very senior position in an organization and you actually rose to the highest level of leadership in a global nonprofit pretty early. Like I think you were maybe in your early thirties when you were in charge of like an entire country 
in the organization. Program. <laughs> a program. nonprofit in a country, not an entire country. <laughs> not an entire country. So an entire program. So you were, you were at, yeah. at a high level of leadership. You weren't very old. So I'm just really curious, um, what was going on and, and how did you get to that point? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I was the youngest female national director in my uh, organization at that period of time. Uh, and uh, when I think back to what it was that enabled me to get to where I was, um, there's a lot of things that I consider. I think um, first I was part of a pretty powerful community who were willing to extend their social capital, who who were willing to extend their resources to me and help me get ahead. Um, so that that went outside of my work world. It was part of my community. People were there ready and willing to help me. I also was working for an organization who, who said expressly that they value people and they recognize the diversity of people and they were willing to make a commitment in young people. They saw that there was a need to have young people in leadership. And they also saw that there was a, a benefit in having women in leadership. And so I was working for an organization who truly lived their values and created space for me to be successful um, as a leader. Uh, with that, I had a ton of coaching. Um, it, it, I never had like one, just one mentor. I had, you know, 12 people who I could go to for different kinds of questions um, who would help me see uh, ways of responding to challenges or opportunities before me. I also think that I worked really, really, really hard. Um, and I will say that was to the detriment um, of my body in many ways and in, to the detriment of my relationships. And so, yes, it's awesome to look back and say, hey, I was the youngest female national director for my organization. Uh, isn't that amazing? Um, my whole community helped me to get there, but I also made a number of personal sacrifices to be there as well. Okay, so looking back now, do you see the value of that social capital? And at the time, did you know that that was really the secret sauce? I'm gonna say yes. Um, I absolutely, from a very early age knew that I needed to borrow on relationships. So there is, when we look at social capital, um, we understand that it's about relationships of trust. And we know that um, in everybody has networks of relationships. What, what is valuable in those relationships? And do I can, I, can I use that value? Is there a way that I can access that value? And um, from a very young age, I had people who were investing in me and sharing their resources, whether it was time, money, intelligence, um, you know, invitations to be part of certain groups. And uh, when, I, when I got to work, um, I didn't have a family who had necessarily been in leadership roles like I had. So I had to ask people how to do things. Um, and, and people were really willing to, to share with me, to give me ideas, to help me think through problems. So the average person doesn't know this. Yeah. We, how did you figure this out 
before the app before everybody else did i'm i'm just really curious again i think that it had something to do with i think that there is a lot of effort in our societies to ma maintain things the way that they are i think that there's a lot of effort you know there's all of this um great energy right now for us to investigate Black Lives Matter. And uh, the book White Fragility is, is really interesting because it talks about how um, those people who have power, who have supremacy, how we continue to maintain our supremacy, how do we continue to maintain our privilege. And I think that through our education systems, through our family systems, through our cultural systems, there is a lot of emotional and structural effort to maintain things the way they are so that power stays with powerful people. Um, and because I came from a poor family, a poor working class family, I didn't know those rules. I wasn't exposed to those rules about how we maintain um, relationships and maintain normality. Uh, so I had no other choice but to to push at the edges because I didn't know any better and to ask questions. And because I saw that people were willing to help me figure things out, I think they saw like energy uh, and they were invigorated by the questions. Um, I learned that it works for me. It was maybe a bit of a survival tactic. Okay. So I'm really curious what motivated you to want to get to the senior leadership role in the organization? Because you did say you did make some personal sacrifices on, along the way. So I'm just curious, what were the motivations to keep going and keep pushing, keep working, move around the world, live in different places? What motivated you? Yeah, great question. Um, so a number of things. My first leadership job that I took uh, was in Canada. And um, my boss at that time moved overseas. There was a vacancy. And I looked around and saw who could be my boss. And I was like, oh, 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 there's no way I want him to be my boss or him to be my boss. So I better put my name in the hat to see if I could be my own boss. I don't, I don't want somebody else to. So the first time that I took a leadership role really wasn't because I was corporate climbing. Uh, it was because I didn't like the other options of who might take on that job. Um, and as I got into leadership, I mean, I, I, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts, you were talking about leadership or teamwork, where, where do we focus our energy? And as I got into leadership roles, um, I had a lot of fun collaborating with people and being able to, I, I felt, shift the way we approach leadership a little bit differently. So um, I was creating space for all of us to come and bring our brains together uh, to solve important problems. And the more important problems there were, there were more opportunities to lead. Um, I never wanted to become the most senior person in my organization in that country. That was not my, uh, I wasn't climbing a ladder, but there were big problems to solve and I wanted to be part of solving those big problems. And the opportunities were there to solve big problems with people. And I felt, uh, excited and energized to create the space where more people could come together to solve big problems. So there's the internal motivation is like that curiosity, that problem solving and the external, the beginning was, I don't want to work for that person. But then it sounds like it became more like there is a problem that needs to be solved. I will step up to the plate and be the one to help solve that problem. Is that kind of how it played yeah, out? And 
Totally. And then knowing that like I had something, I had a specific skill set that would help solve that problem at that time in a unique way that was necessary. It was a bit of listening into the world, listening in and saying, yeah, I've, I've got that thing that is required right now. I've got to say yes. Okay. I love that. And I'm really curious how you shifted from being a leader at a big global nonprofit to moving back to Canada and getting into the academic space. How did that happen? That's a great question. So there's a theory called planned happenstance. It's a career theory. I know you've got a career background. Maybe you've uh, explored it a little bit. Uh, Basically, it says the world of work is complex. Um, There are so many different factors that are at play as people step into work. Um, There are no guarantees. You might study one thing in university or college and think that it's going to lead you to that job, but actually there's lots of different factors that are at play. Uh, So to be effective and successful in our careers, we need to look for the magic, listen for the magic, and when you see the magic, step in, take a risk, be be confident to take a risk and say yes. So when I uh, came home from overseas, I, I had an amazing time living overseas. I loved my work, but it did come at personal consequence. Um... Being a single woman woman in Asia in a leadership role is challenging, and so I knew that I needed to come home, uh, and I was excited to come home and uh, start dating in Canada again. And so I I started to think about what do I want in my work, and I put out four goals, four things that I sensed were really important. So, um, you know, I wanted to work on a cause, something that was important um, for community. Uh, I wanted to work in a space where there were young people and where we were part of supporting young people to think critically. I knew I wanted to work in a space in Toronto. So I put out my my four things that were of most value to me in my work. And um, the world met me. And I had, again, I had no intentions of moving into academia as such. I thought I have a couple of options I could Um, go into consulting. I could do my PhD full-time and not work. I could go work for another nonprofit. And this surfaced, it was well aligned with my values and allowed me to solve interesting problems with my own unique skill set. And your job was, this job was being the director in the career center at a university, right? Correct. Okay. So Okay, so that's how you got there. And I love this idea of like, look for the magic. And when you see the magic, get out of your comfort zone and like follow that magic. That is like the number one principle of working with me is that you got to get out of the comfort zone because that is where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, I love that Mm -hmm. concept. So thank you for sharing that. I've never heard it be called career happenstance, but I think that is beautiful. So thank you for adding that word to my vocabulary. So I am curious, in your work with these students, tell me what's different now than it was kind of 20, 25 years ago. Great question. So 20 20 years ago is when I graduated from university. And I would say that there's a ton of things that are different um, between now and then. One is more, there are more students that are graduating today from post-secondary education than ever before. And on one hand, that's a great, Thing. Canada is one of the most educated nations in the world, but it also means that there is more competition when you graduate. And what does more competition when you graduate mean? That means that uh, employers can ask for more and give less than ever before. 
So when I graduated from university, I graduated in a time where the starting salary was, was higher proportionally than what it is today. I was graduating at a time when after making all of that investment in, in my university fees, I was able to get a full-time job with a contract, with vacation, with benefits, um, and have some financial security so I could start to pay back my student loans. Um, I was graduating in a time, here's a really interesting statistic um, about how employers are investing in, in their um, new employees. So I was graduating in a time where there was still a lot of investment in new employees um, understanding the world of work. Because we know that when you go from school to work, it's a very different mindset. Uh, what is expected of you is very different. In school, it's, you know, A, B, Cs, and Ds. You know if there's a right answer and a wrong answer. We know that in work, it is really nuanced. It's really complex. There's no right answer. We're creating the right answers. And so back when I graduated, there was a huge investment in onboarding and helping me to understand what it meant to be a worker instead of a student. Um, in fact, the government, I did a, an internship program funded by the government. It was worth like $25,000. Doesn't exist anymore. And the studies actually show that over the last 20 years, there has been a decline in onboarding by 40%. So what we're spending on people at as they enter work for the first time is 40% less than 20 years ago. And their education is like 40% more and they're, they're getting precarious jobs. They're not getting full-time contracts. So the world of work is so different today than it was when I graduated. So how does that affect the economy and companies and businesses ability to deliver value, make profits, all of that? Cause it sounds like they're saving in the salary and the like the actual cost of the people there but is that affecting their productivity and what like the output? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I'm looking at in my PhD is, so um, in order for people to think critically, you need a certain environment in order to think critically. And when we're not offering the onboarding that's required, when we're not helping people enter the organizations and learn what are the theories and the philosophies behind our work, and learn how to do problem solving, uh, we might think, oh, we're saving all this money, this is great, it's cheaper to get, to get staff here, and there's more staff, so we just go through them, right? Like we can hire this person uh, this year, and, and in six months time, if they leave, we're gonna get the next person, and then the next person, um, because there's always a steady stream of people who have a university degree that we can hire, but actually I believe that it's compromising our ability to solve problems. It's compromising our employees' ability to think critically um, and to evolve the organization as the needs arise. So that is like making a big problem, right? Because don't we want, aren't, is a Canada a knowledge economy? Yeah, absolutely, right? We think that we're a knowledge economy, but we're making a few poor decisions along the way. Okay, so we're at this point and you're doing research to validate all of this, right? So you're finding out that this is, this is how it's working. This is the road we're going down. How do we shift this? So we've made, we've got some, we've got some good directions at a policy level. And we've got some very powerful, some powerful rhetoric at the personal level about how people should behave in the labor market. But one of the things we haven't done enough of 
is to look at the organizational context and to look at how organizations are being structured, uh, how the knowledge in organizations is being disseminated across the organization, how behaviors in the organization are happening, um, that will either create new knowledge and will um, make our knowledge economy more robust, or is the system and the structure and the behaviors of our organizations, is it weakening our ability to innovate and to evolve? And so I think more attention needs to be paid to help us think about our organizations. Are they healthy organizations? So what are things that you would measure in a healthy organization so that you know where, where you are on the scale, whether your organization is healthy or not? Yeah. So trust is a really big one. So social capital, the heart of social capital, trust and reciprocity. So do I trust you? Do I trust you're going to do what you say? Do I trust that your words are true? Do I trust that you're going to, you know, show up at our, to our meeting at 11 o'clock? Um, if there is trust, then there is a ca capability that we can reciprocate, that there is reciprocity. So I will help you with something. You will help me with something. Um, when we have trust and reciprocity, it reduces the transaction costs in an organization. So I don't have to sit there and have surveillance over you. I don't have to sit there and like monitor, did my staff come in at nine o'clock and did they you know, complete that Excel spreadsheet to the quality that I expected? If I trust that my employees or my team are delivering, then it reduces the, the transaction cost of the quality of their work. It also, as we have trust um, across organizations, it reduces transaction costs as we're exchanging um, products or services or goods or, or whatnot. So I think the first and foremost is, do we see trust in the organization? How, and what are the spaces? How can people talk about the spaces where trust can grow? So, you know, sometimes this is really simple things like, in a meeting, how, how is trust shared or built within a meeting? Um, are there spaces within the organization where people can, can grow their trust, whether it's like, you know, you've got a, a kitchen and people can have lunch and share about their lives and share about their work and trust grows. Um, but I think that organizations where there is trust, that, that is the sign of, um, of health. Okay, so I want to go back to this original Facebook post in this idea that connections and social capital matter and how you build social capital, you build it through your network, through trust and reciprocity, but we aren't teaching people that in school. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how can we teach people? Because I think that it's the key to having productive organizations to create the key to knowledge, the key to innovation, but there's just this lie that we keep teaching young people that if you work hard, you keep your head down and you graduate. Know the right answers. Know the right answers. You will get ahead and you can do whatever you want and you can have all the opportunities that you want in the workplace. How do we change that? So I think there's three things that come to mind immediately. One is understand who and why does this lie continue to perpetuate itself? So who benefits? Who benefits from this lie? Uh, big businesses are benefiting from this lie because it's producing this reserve army of labor. I think Marx called it that. So because of this lie, we're producing all of these people who have university degrees who can spin through an organization without having to invest in the legacy or in the development of these people. 
Um, uh, and so I, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you look at the inequalities in organizations between the highest paid CEOs and their median staff or their lowest paid, the change over time is like, it's through the roof. And, and we don't typically acknowledge this. So in 1965, the difference between the lowest paid employee and the CEO, it was 20 times different. So if I was making $100 a week my, uh, as the lowest paid employee, my big boss was making, I guess, $2,000, 20 times more. Today, there is a difference of 278 times difference from the lowest paid employee to the CEO. So that's like extraordinary to think that within an organization, someone at the top is making so much more benefit than their lowest paid employees. I don't know. I kind of think that the people at the top want us to continue to believe this lie, work hard, um, do the right thing, you know, know the right answers, um, keep your head down because it enables them to continue to stay in power. So I think we need to question who is, who is perpetuating this lie and what is being used to make us believe, get your head down, social capital doesn't matter. So that's the first thing. I think another thing that's really important is to look at what within education helps you to build social capital, helps you to build trust and reciprocity. It's being part of clubs, it's being part of groups, whether it's your GAMI group, the fencing club, the swim team, um, being part of community is really important and we have eroded our community spaces. So, uh, you know, when I think about the community spaces that I had 20 years ago when I was graduating versus what students have now, we have eroded those community spaces. We need to encourage young people to be part of groups and clubs and follow their interest and not just follow the buck and not, and, and create spaces, invest in those spaces. Um, I think that's a, another really big one. So uh, investing in the co-curricular programs um, in, in uh, college and university is really important. And I had a third one, but I can't remember what the third one is. Okay, so those are two great ones. So really just like recognizing that it does benefit business right now, but I think in the short term, because I think this mentality of having this workforce that can turn around all the time, it's not going to lead to innovation. It's not going to lead to loyalty. And I think eventually you're not going to have a strong pipeline of people that can take off, like that could take on that CEO role because they're not understanding that that's really how it works. So I think it's, potentially short term. And then I totally agree on the extracurriculars because I think it's this mentality like I got to study all the time. I got to get good grades because there's more people in university. It's like more competitive. So then instead of joining the origami club or the fencing team or whatever, it's like, well, it's so competitive. I need to get the best grade or else I'm not going to succeed. But it's actually the other way around. If you have social capital, it doesn't matter what your grades are because that's, to be honest, really how opportunities are given out in the world and how people are and successful. never does anyone or very very rarely does anyone ever look at your university grades when you're getting a job yeah that's a good point too. it doesn't happen like nobody looks for your report card okay so those are the things that we can do and this conversation was really really amazing i'm learning a lot it's just shifting my mindset the way that i'm looking at things the way that i see privilege the way that I honestly like think like look at my own situation and when we graduated, we graduated at a time of privilege. So where we are today, we have we are living those fruits and just I think taking that space to acknowledge that when you do come from privilege, what that looks like and what's the, what that has brought to you, it really it just helps you to see that 
you know, the, the love, the playing field is not level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's really not. So Amelia, I always like to leave people with an action that they can take within 24 hours after learning something new and you've taught me a lot. So what is something that people can do to implement this, to build their social capital, to build trust? I would say go find someone who's 20 years younger than you and have a conversation with them. Tell them a little bit about what your life was like 20 years ago and ask them, is it the same? Are you experiencing the same right now? Is it the same or is it different? Check our assumptions about what it means uh, to be within this generation. I love that. I love that because it's building relationships too. It's building networks and it's creating opportunities. So Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I learned a lot and I'm so excited to share this with everybody. Thank you. This has been fun. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about Ambitious Every Day. It is all of the exercises that I take my coaching clients through in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals. And here's the great news. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get 11 pages of the journal for free as a PDF right to your inbox. So head on over to ambitiontheory.ca and sign up.